Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We started our discussion last week of uh, the final section here in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 16. The primary theme of that section is worship. So we just talked about worship last week. And what is worship? I want to remind you of another quote by James Packer. He said, to worship God is this. It's to recognize his worth or worthiness. Our word worship comes from that word. Worth-ship. Acknowledging, recognizing, proclaiming God is worthy. To look Godward and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. The Bible calls this activity glorifying God and it views it as the ultimate end and from one point of view the whole duty of man. In other words, this is why we are. This is why we exist. We were made to worship God. And as I've been thinking about worship over the last several weeks, uh, this idea came to me. I can, I can kind of sum up worship for myself in these three phrases. Worship is lifting up, falling down, and giving in. Worship is lifting up God's name and God's name alone. Praising and exalting God. To God, proclaiming to God that I know he's great, proclaiming to others. Worship is falling down. You recall from last week that in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word means literally fall down. That's the appropriate posture for creatures to have before their creator. We fall down before you, God. And then giving in. When we acknowledge how great God is and we get low before God appropriately so, then we give in to God. We surrender our will to him. We give in. We lift up his name. We fall down before him. We give in and we surrender all that we are. The challenge in the Corinthian church, and I would argue in the church in College Station, is this. We take our eyes off of the greatness of God because our hearts are divided. We love God, but we also love other things. And as a result, when we come into worship, we are distracted because of these divided hearts. Francois Fenelon was a a French mystic. Years ago, he wrote this. He said, those who are gods are always glad when they are not divided because they only want what God wants and want to do for him all that he wishes What God asks of us is a will which is no longer divided between him and any other creature or any other thing. If I can put it differently, you will always do what you want to do. Are you tracking with me? You will always do what you want to do. In other words, you will always follow your strongest desire. What you most desire, that's what you'll do. That's the dilemma that Paul begins to unravel a little bit in Romans chapter 7. He says, yes, I love God and I want the will of God, but only part of me wants the will of God. But then there's this other part of me, I would describe it as the flesh, that wants something entirely different. And when that desire is stronger, that's what I do. And so what worship does for us, in a sense, is it it roots out those lesser loves, those false loves, and it inflames our hearts to love God more. See, our problem is very simple. It's we just don't love God enough because the more we love God, the more we will not love these other things. And then we'll do what God wants. As Fenelon says, then we'll always be glad. That's the problem in the Corinthian church. I would argue that's the problem in our church. And my my prayer for us as a church is this, that we would allow God to reach in and root out all of the, the stupid, foolish, silly things that we love. And you know, we can do that willingly 
or unwillingly, but God is committed to it. And if we do it unwillingly, then God is going to reach out and he's going to tear them out and it's going to hurt a lot. And so the best thing for us is just to say, let me give that freely, God. Let me just love you first, most, best. That's always been the problem of the church. That's the problem with our church. That's what God needs to do for us, people. We need to love God more. I want you to read with me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul begins to address this particular issue with the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read verses 2 through 16. Paul says, Now I praise you, because you remember me in everything. You hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of her husband. For the man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Okay. Where are we going with that passage, right? That's what you're thinking to yourself. This is a really difficult passage to interpret a lot of opinions, but I want you to remember this. Okay? Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea that Paul is trying to get across. The only appropriate way for us to worship a God such as our God is with our complete affection and attention. Not being distracted by anything and not becoming a distraction to anyone else. Okay? Give God our complete affection, our complete attention, not being distracted by anything else and not becoming a distraction to others. Now, for the really the next several chapters, not just this section, Paul is going to lay out a principle. He's going to start with a principle in verses 2 and 3, and then he's going to apply this principle in a variety of settings. Okay, so the principle is reiterated in verses 2 and 3, and it is this. Worthy worship honors the very nature of God. Okay, worthy worship honors the very nature of God. Verse 2, Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. However, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Now, if I asked you to describe God, so what, what is God like? I hope that you would start with a discussion of the Trinity. Because that's the very nature of God. God is a triune God. That concept is not shared in any other faith. God is... Three persons, but just one God. Father, Son, and Spirit. All God, all equally God, 
None of them are more God than anyone else. And yet they are distinct, three distinct persons, but all equally God. There is equality in the Godhead. In the church, there is equality. Paul says in Christ, there's neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither barbarian nor Scythian. In other words, gender, race, social status, irrelevant in the church. Irrelevant. Because we are all one in Christ. And so when we worship, our worship should reflect that part of the very nature of God. Three persons, but just one God. But in the Godhead, there is also order. And there is structure. The Father is over all. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father and the Son have sent the Spirit so that the Spirit can glorify not himself, but glorify the Son so the Son can glorify the Father. Even though all three are equally God, right? Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, although he existed in the very form of God, he represented uh, the exact nature and likeness. Hebrews chapter 1. The radiance of God's glory. That is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, fully and completely God, and yet he chose to empty himself and take on the bondservant. That is, he said to the Father, I will choose to do your will. And so Jesus said of himself, I have not come on my own initiative. The Father sent me. I don't speak my own words. I only speak the words that the Father gave me to speak. I don't do my own will, only the will of the Father. I don't do miracles on my own initiative, but only what the Father tells me to do. And at the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry, as he's about to go to the cross, he says to the Father, this is not what I want, yet not my will but yours be done. Paul picks up this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, you, church, you belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Chapter 15, he's going to say, Jesus Christ will one day gather all of the kingdoms of the earth and put them in subjection to himself, and then he will take all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he will turn those all over to the Father, and then the Son himself will subject himself to the Father, who is over all. So that God may be all in all. In other words, the order of the Trinity maintained, even though there is equality. And men and women, in the church, we should reflect both equality and order. In fact, God has placed you in relationships in which you must learn to submit because God wants all of your life and all of your relationships to reflect the order which is true in the Trinity. Now, you were born under authority called parents. Or you were born with parents, almost all of you. You're born with parents, right? And then you move to your teachers, and then you've got a boss, and then you've got governing authorities. You've got mayors and governors and presidents, And then you've got authority in the church. We have elders, and in the home, there are husbands, fathers. There's authority because there is authority and order within the Godhead. And so it's God's intention that all of our life and all of our relationships would reflect that very order. And so Paul says, here's the controlling idea. In the church, when you come to worship, you should look like God. Equality and yet order. And he's saying to the Corinthian church, but the way that you are worshiping is causing a distraction from the very glory of God. And what he'll do is he'll first address the men in their worship and then the women in their worship. And this whole section, remember, is about the corporate or gathered worship of the church. So he moves first to the men, and this is his message. Worthy worship among you men loves God more than status. Worthy worship loves God more than status. Verse 4. 
Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. And who is the head of the man? It is Christ. So every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand this section, you've really got to engage in the culture of Paul's day. Okay? Uh, there are some very significant cultural realities that help this make sense. So what I'm going to try to do for you is to demonstrate uh, in our culture the significance and then tie it to the first century culture. Men, there are uh, appropriate times and places and manners in which we should cover our heads, Right? It's the right hat to wear at the right time in the right place, right? You walk into the MSC and you're wearing a hat. Somebody's going to say to you, what? No, they're not going to say take it off. They're going to say, uncover, right? Uncover, Aggies, right? Got some core guys in here. Uncover, uncover. Why? Because it's a memorial. It's the Memorial Student Center. A memorial to fallen Aggies. When we say Pledge of Allegiance as Americans to our flag, what do we do? Take your hat off. It's a sign of respect. Take your hat off, right? There are other times when it's appropriate to wear a hat. This is my, uh, my hat that I wear when I'm hunting. Okay? This is a gift from my daughter. And uh, when I wear this hat, the deer can't see me. But, but uh, everybody else can still know that I'm an Aggie, right? So there you go. That's, that's my hunting hat. When I go backpacking, I wear this hat. This is my backpacking hat. It's the right hat. It's, it's uh, felt. It keeps me warm. This is the perfect hat for backpacking. However, when I go to the beach and it's warm, I don't wear that hat. I wear this hat. That's my beach hat, right? I picked that out myself. <laughs> this is for the beach. I don't wear this everywhere. Uh, then there are other hats which uh, should never be worn by anyone at any point in time. Those are hats like this, Okay. <laughs> Right, I, I, no, I can't even put it on, right? But in reality, for some people, in some places, sometimes that's an appropriate hat to wear. Paul is not saying, men, you should never wear any form of any head covering at any point in time. He's saying, men, when you gather to worship, do not cover your head. Because when you gather to worship and you cover your head, you're sending a signal in your culture that your greatest allegiance is not... Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate. Roman citizens, men of high status, wore togas. And when Roman men, citizens of high status, went in to worship their gods, they took the toga and they pulled it up over their heads. Bottom right is a bust of Caesar Augustus. He was almost always pictured like this, with his head covered because he was such a pious man. And he was a man of such high social status. And so what's happening here in the church is that Christian men are going into the church and instead of pointing attention to Jesus Christ, they're drawing attention to themselves and to their status. And they are making distinctions, but in the church there is no status, is there? There's neither male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. Race, gender, wealth, social status is not relevant because we are all one in Christ. We are known not outwardly, but because of our status in Jesus. And that's it. That means you can't reserve a seat at church because you give more money. You can't put your little plaque on one spot. Students, we've thanked you and praised you for this before. You come in and sit where you want. That's that's a wonderful thing because you disrupt the adults. 
right? You disrupt them because, oh, that's my seat. Well, somebody's sitting there. Well, don't move them. Don't move them because we are one in Christ. And so Paul says this, men, when the church gathers together, you're praying, you're prophesying, you're worshiping, and you have your head covered, you disgrace Jesus Christ because he is your head. And you're communicating that you care more about your status than you care about Jesus Christ. Jesus addressed this as well when he talked about the spiritual leaders of his day. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They want to be known. It would be as if a man were a judge in town, and when he walked into worship in church, he made sure he was wearing his robes. Look at him. And he says, look at me. When we come to church, we are to look at Jesus. And only Jesus. Men, what do we wrestle with? What do we struggle with? We want to be significant. We want to make a mark in the world. We want to have impact. We want to be known, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but the temptation is to love that more than that we love Jesus. And pretty soon what we're doing is we're erecting our own Tower of Babel. That is, we're trying to make a name for ourselves. And consequently, we're taking the attention off of Jesus Christ. Man, Jesus and Jesus alone. Should you work hard? Should you do well? Absolutely, so that you can make a name for Jesus Christ. Why are we tempted to invest all of our time at work and neglect our homes? Because at work, we can receive praise, we can grow in status in the community, but we don't get that stroke from home. And so what's the result? Men who are passive at home, but active at work. Trying to build a name. Verse 7, Paul says, A man ought not, to have his head covered. Why? Because he is the image and he is the glory of God. That is, God made Adam. He had made everything else and it was all beautiful, but then he made Adam, whose name means man. Okay, representative of man. And God gloried in man. He rejoiced in his creation because he had now made a creature that could have a personal relationship with him and could reflect and represent his glory and make a name for God throughout the earth, not a name for himself. That's why we were created. William Temple wrote, worship is this, worship is adoration. Adoration is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. That is is powerful. Adoration is the most selfless thing we can do. Why? Because we're taking all attention off of ourselves and we're putting it upon God. And when we worship, consequently, it roots out those self-centered drives and longings within us. And so then when we do act in the world, we're acting on behalf of the glory of God and not for ourselves. Men, God is calling you to root those things out. God is calling you to root those things out. Men, place God first and foremost in your hearts. Next, Paul moves on to women. Worthy worship, women, is to love God more than loving beauty. Verse 5, Paul says, But every woman 
who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, and her head is her husband. He's talking specifically to married women. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Again, cultural understanding is key to cluing into this passage. Paul's going to make two points. First is this, uncovered wives brought shame to their husbands. Uncovered wives brought shame to their husbands because married women always covered their heads in public. Jews, Greeks, Romans, throughout the world in the first century, married women covered their heads. So now when these married women are going out in public and they're participating in public worship and they're, they're taking off their head covering, they are saying this, I am available. <laughs> you get the significance of this? They're saying, I am available. I'm not off the market. And Paul says, so when you uncover your head, that is a shame. That's a disgrace to your husband because you're not available. You're taken by him. You belong to him. So cover your head or it is a disgrace to your head. That is your husband. When you uncover your literal head, you disgrace your figurative head, that is your husband. In the Roman culture, the, the Roman women were just going, going far against social convention in Paul's day. They were moving way against social convention. And the married women were moving throughout the culture. Married women uncovering their heads and wrapping up their hair in all kinds of fancy hairdos. Let me illustrate for you. It became so prevalent that it actually made its way onto an imprint of a coin. Notice the braided hair. Have you always wondered, why did Peter and Paul say, women, don't braid your hair? And would Paul say that today? The answer is no. Paul wouldn't say that today. But in that day, for a married woman to uncover her head and to braid her hair was a signal. The Roman women were following the fashion trends of the immoral women, and approximating the dress code of the prostitutes. And so Paul says, and Peter says, women, don't braid your hair. Don't blindly follow the cultural trends because you are sending a signal in your culture, I'm available. Second, uncovered wives created distractions for others. Verse seven, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of her husband. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. This is an allusion to the creation account. God created Adam and he looked down at this first creature made in his image and God gloried in Adam. And then God realized, yeah, but Adam is incomplete. He is inadequate. He is insufficient on his own. And so he took a rib and he fashioned it's the right word. He fashioned a companion for him, woman. And when Adam saw her, Adam gloried in her. He said, oh my gosh, wow, wow, this is amazing, God. Oh, all those animals, a lot of creativity here, but wow, look at this, God. This is awesome. Wow, God, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. Let's call her woman because she came out of me and she belongs with me and I want her right here. I mean, it's, it's exclamatory in the Hebrew. He's going, oh yes, finally, right? This is amazing. She is my glory. That is, I glory in her. Women, this is not a statement of inferiority in any respect. 
In fact, God says, I'm going to make for Adam a helper comparable to him. And that word for helper is most commonly used in the Old Testament of God. God says, I'm a helper. And I'm going to make Adam a helper because he needs some help. And she's going to be corresponding to him, meaning she is complementary. She is equal, but she is very different. She completes him. In fact, man is inadequate and incomplete until I give him this companion. Humanity is incomplete. The image of God reflected in humanity is incomplete until there is male and female. It's not a statement of inferiority. In fact, read with me in verse 11. Paul says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. In other words, Paul is trying to create for them, remind them of this dynamic tension that there is equality of personhood, but there is order and structure. And all of that should be reflected in the way that we worship. Wives, you are the glory of your husband. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. My wife makes me look good. <laughs> That's why I married her. Because I didn't look good and I needed to look good. And so I married her and she makes me look good. And people meet me and then they meet her and they go, What? How did this happen? You know, how did that guy get this girl? I don't get it. Right? And I say, You know, it's just sovereign luck. I'm just... <laughs> grace, the kindness of God. She's my joy and my crown. Women, ask a man, what's the greatest thing that God ever created? And if he has a lick of sense, he will say, woman, right? Woman. It's hard for us to imagine a world without you. You've probably imagined it before, and it's a terrible, terrible place, right? I mean, it's, it's dirty, it's messy, nothing's picked up, it's kind of stinky and smelly and sweaty, it's hairy, it's just, uh, you know, uh, it's beastly. Man, you know, we're not, we're not pretty, guys, even at our best. We're beasts, women, you are beauty. And God created us as men to be attracted to female beauty, But on the other hand, we're also distracted by female beauty. And women, you need to guard and protect us in that. You need to pay attention to that because that is how God has wired us. And we need to be protected. So how does that look practically? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Um, I'm not going to tell you this morning that from now on, you can't get in women unless you're wearing a hat. I don't think that's Paul's primary point. Uh, Wives and husbands, if you work that out amongst yourselves and you feel like it's a good symbol of the hierarchy of authority and order in our home and I want to, well, that's fine. That's fine for you. But I think mostly in our culture, wearing of a hat to church is more of a a fashion statement than a cultural symbol. But if, if that's what you and your husband want to do, that's great. But I don't think that's Paul's, really his primary point. I think something that's more relevant would be this. Women, don't dress to distract. Hey, women, don't dress to distract. Now, from time to time, people will ask me and say, Brian, do you ever get nervous when you preach? The answer is no. Once I'm up here, I'm honest, I'm having fun. Except right now, I'm about to get nervous. 
<laughs> because saying, okay, Brian, you're going to talk about women's fashions and what they should wear and not wear. Really? You're really going to go there? Well, no, actually, I'm going to, I asked Tracy if I could just put her, throw her under the bus. Let me, let me tell you what my wife said. Right? It's not what I think. It's what she said. <laughs> and I asked permission because <laughs> there's order and authority in our home. So Tristan and I have talked about this for years. And I asked her again last night. I said, remind me, remind me. And she said, you know, younger women often don't even think about the fact that the way that they dress can distract the men around them from worship. They don't even think about it. They don't acknowledge it. In fact, she said, most younger women dress for one another. And they put, up their, put on their makeup for one another. Now, as women get older, they learn and they know. And they may even begin to use that, understanding that it is a powerful tool in the lives of men. And so I would say this, women, younger women especially, now you've been put on notice. The way that you dress affects the men around you. And I would argue not just in the worship service, but everywhere that you go, you reflect Jesus Christ. So dress appropriately. Don't dress to distract. Dress to honor Jesus Christ, and honor the men around you. Second, don't dress to impress. Don't dress to impress. When I was going through college, we had a phrase, we called it sharking. I don't know if that's still used. We called it sharking. It was dressing in such a way that, that you would get a look from somebody else. Right? Whether a, a look of lust or a look of, wow, that's pretty cool, whatever. But it, but it was, it was a, I, need, I need to get that look because that look makes me feel good about myself. And it's not enough that Jesus loves me. I need, I need to get that look. And so I would dress to get a look. Dress to distract. We called it sharking. Call it whatever you want. But why do you wear what you wear? Let me encourage you. Don't simply follow the cultural trends around you. But think about why you wear what you wear. And think about how what you wear affects those around you. Now, I'm done. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I've uh, gotten as specific as I wanted and treaded out far enough onto that very thin ice to say, women, now work it out amongst yourselves. Right? Women, you work it out amongst yourselves. And particularly older women, mentor the younger women and coach them. Enough said about that. Okay. Maybe even more importantly, I'd say this. Wives, honor your husbands in public. Speak well of your husband in public. I promise you, your husband is not perfect. I get it. No husband is. And there may be issues, some of them even significant, that you need to work through with your husband. You may even need some advice and counsel from another woman. Well, then go and get that in private. But when you are in public, don't dishonor your husband by the words that you speak. When you're in public, praise the qualities that are good. Don't dishonor him by letting the world know he doesn't pick up his pants. He doesn't do the dishes. He doesn't spend enough time at home. He doesn't, he's not good with the kids. He, no, 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 no. Hey, honor your husband. Honor your husband. Speak well of him so that he can feel comfortable and confident. Does he have issues that he needs to work on? Yes, we do. Let's work on those. But wives, honor your husbands. Husbands, earn your wife's respect. Husbands, earn your wife's respect. Don't put all of your time and your energy, even your money and your emotion into making a name for yourself in the world. 
Rather, invest yourself in your family. Lead your family. Men, step up. Again, the epidemic in our culture is men who are passive in the home, but active in the workplace. Men, step up. Okay, step up. You say, well, I don't know how. I, I, I just don't know how. And I say, I don't care. <laughs> is that an excuse at work? Is it? Matt, I need you to go take care of this project. I don't know how. Say, yes, sir, and you go figure it out, right? Isn't that how we work at men? Isn't that how we, uh, is that what we do? We're not going to admit incompetence at work. I'm not competent to do that project. Could you give it to somebody else and demote me? Uh, no, it didn't happen, does it, right? We say, yeah, absolutely, I got it. I know how to do that. Oh, man, Get a book, go to a seminar, watch a video, ask a friend. You don't know how to lead in your home? I don't care, go figure it out. Ask a friend, watch a video, go to a seminar. Men, step up. Can I get some nods or amens or something? Okay, because that's what men do. Bravo, yeah, that's right, right. That's what men do. Men, this is what it means to be a man is even when we are confused, even fearful, we step into the fray, we take initiative, so do it. Bravo. Amen, okay. Finally, husbands, praise your wife's beauty. Praise your wife's beauty. Praise her good qualities. Praise her privately. Praise her publicly. Praise her in every way. Because then she will feel so safe and secure with you that she won't feel the need to go out into the world and find it anywhere else. Praise her. So, back to our original question. What is worship? I want you to read with me chapter 11, verse 10. Paul says, Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I read that the first time and you thought, what? <laughs> this is what Paul is saying, I believe. According to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, God is taking the church, that is us, and he's holding the church up before all of the hosts of heaven. That is, heaven is watching our worship. Contemplate that for a moment, right? Right now, heaven is watching our worship. And what does heaven want to see? Heaven wants to see a reflection of the very nature of God. That is, no status, Father, Son, Spirit. Male, female, rich, poor, black, white. No status, but order. Okay, order. Mutual submission, deferring to one another, giving in. The angels are watching us right now. They're watching the way that we worship. Do we reflect the very nature of God in the way that we worship? Worship is this. It's lifting up. Right? We, we exalt the name of God, not ourselves. We fall down before God. We humble ourselves before God because God is great and we are not. We give in to God. We surrender our wills to him and we serve one another. Why? Because our hearts are now undivided. We become so enthralled with how great God is that we stop worrying about making ourselves great. And that's really what we need God to do for us, to reach into our hearts and just, just rip out, extract all of those foolish things that we love. Would you bow with me? Father, I pray that we would not be foolish, but that we would love one thing. As Tim leads us in worship as we close, I want you to take just a moment and ask God's Spirit to search your heart. See, is there anything that has crept into your heart that is 
dividing your love for God. It's distracting you from, from pure worship of him. Ask God through the convicting work of his spirit, the power of his spirit to pull that out. To love God truly and purely.